Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And each episode of Book Music, we focus on a book about music. It could be a musician's memoir, a biography, a music theory. It could be anything to do with music, even a fictional character who's a musician. That's how far we go on Book Music. And today, I am very excited today because this is a subject matter that's very close to my heart. It's the book is called The Velvet Mafia, The Gay Men Who Ran the Swinging 60s. And it's by Daryl W. Bullock. And we have as our guest, Daryl W. Bullock. Welcome, Daryl. Well, oh, hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> you're, from, you're in England and we're in Los Angeles. That's right. Yeah. So there's there's going to be a little bit of a delay, and um, the accent's going to sound a little strange, but uh, we'll manage. I, I, please excuse our American accent. Yeah, I was going to say it's our accent that sounds strange, right? <laughs> I, I was I was more thinking my accent to your listeners, but yeah. <laughs> um, the Velvet Mafia. I, first of all, I have to tell you, I have an obsession about London, 1950s, 1960s, but specifically about the gay world of that time period. Then it's a book for you, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's very interesting because I'm, I'm, as far as I know, I'm straight. You know, it could change any minute. We don't know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just one of those people that's totally obsessed with gay pop culture, especially of that time period. Well, a lot of people are. You know, it's not, it's not just uh, LGBT people who are interested in this history. A lot of straight people are fascinated by, you know, the fact that there were so many um, gay men, lesbian women, bisexual people in the business at the time. Yeah, and and this game, this book is specifically focused on 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 England more than America. It, that's absolutely right. This is really about the story of how rock and roll and pop music exploded in Britain in uh, from 1956 through to the end of the 1960s, and it's really the story of about what happened in in kind of London and Liverpool, I guess, for one of a better, you know, for one of these uh, over that period. And. How did you come upon the subject matter for yourself to write a book like this? Well, I'm gay, so that helps. <laughs> as, as, a, as a gay man of a certain age, I'm in my mid-50s, and uh, you kind of, you're always aware of these little stories. You hear stories. If, if you hang around musicians or, you know, hang around with writers or hang around with, with LGBTQ people, mm-hmm. um, you hear stories about what's going on, about about things, about about people. You, know, lots of rumors, lots of gossip, but you know some little nuggets, some little factoids of really interesting information. Um, and I was writing an earlier book, which is it's called David Bowie Made Me Gay, which is a hundred year history of people around the world, uh, LGBTQ people around the world, recording, making wow. records. That's amazing. And while I was while I was writing that, I was hearing more stories about about the people behind the scenes, about other people in the business. Mm-hmm. But the book that I was writing then was was really about recording artists, so I wasn't uh, I wasn't paying too much attention to the other stories, if you like. Right. But but I had them on the back burner as an idea of something I would like to look at, given mm-hmm. the opportunity at later days. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's that. One character in this book was not absolutely fascinating or, or super interesting. Um, they're all equally interesting. Um, you know, I guess we have to start with the sort of the ground zero or the, or the foundation 
character of this book of your book is uh, I presume is, is Larry Parnes. Sure. Can you tell me? Can you t- tell us about Larry Parnes? Yeah. Well, Larry Parnes is kind of the starting block for for rock and roll in this country. I mean, rock and roll arrived in Britain a couple of years after the states, so we had a very different route to rock and roll, if you like. I mean, in the states, you had that build up with with blues and R&B and, and all those kind of things have been happening for, you know, for years before, you know, before Elvis or anybody like that arrived. In Britain, we didn't really have that. We had a very kind of um, sterile pop scene that was very avuncular. It was kind of full of, oh, full of men in their 30s in dinner jackets and bow ties. Mm-hmm. It, it was very stagey. It was very... Uh, Sunday night television, if you know what I mean. It was very straight and ordinary and boring and black and white. Um, right. And then, you know, in, in, in the mid-50s, kind of, you know, 10 years or so after World War II, and we're still recovering from World War II at this point. There's still massive poverty around. There's still bomb craters in London. There are still, you know, we're just coming out of things like clothes rationing and food rationing and stuff like this. Mm. And we've got this bunch of teenagers who want to listen to rock and roll, who were listening to, you know, Elvis and, and, and little Richard and stuff like that on jukeboxes in coffee shops. Um, but there's no record company in Britain that's bringing those records over or very few that are releasing them. And certainly no one that's, that's tailoring or, or catering for the local audience, if you like. So it's really, it's very much a react. What's happening in Britain at the time is really a kind of, second-hand version of what was happening in America. We're getting things like the movies coming over. You were getting Bill Haley coming over and mm-hmm. and stuff, but we don't have any rock and roll of our own. Mm-hmm. But these kids are hanging around coffee shops and they're strumming their acoustic guitars and they're occasionally picking up electric guitars, which are very expensive and very hard to get hold of. And Larry Parnes comes onto the scene. He's someone who has been flirting around the edges of, of theater and of showbiz He's he's invested in a couple of low-key plays. He dates uh, an American singer called Johnny Ray. He's he's interested enough. And, and because of his background, he's got a background in retail. He kind of understands what the kids want and what the kids are after. And a mm. friend takes him down to a coffee shop in Soho to see Tommy Steele, who's this, I think he was 17 years old at the time, blonde-haired um, sailor who is wowing the kids in the coffee shops. And Larry instantly understands that this is something that he can market to the kids. And that's kind of where it all starts. It's really fascinating to me because England, I mean, I, I think of England like sort of like a history of music halls and, and you know, like variety shows. Mm. And, I, and I feel that Larry Parnes comes from that, that culture, that, of that era of, of English showbiz. Well, he does. I mean, his his uncle was uh, a musical turn. His um, his aunt was a, a member of a kind of a, a female vocal act. He has some experience there, but not massive amounts. He wasn't a performer himself. He mm-hmm. tried to break into acting quite early and and just and didn't get anywhere at all. Um, his only experience in singing was when he was kind of eight, nine, ten years old and putting on little plays and, and getting involved in things then. But he he wasn't a singer himself. He knew he was never going to make it as a singer, but mm-hmm. he could see a way to help other people, other much more, many, much, much, much more talented people um, mm. 
make the jump into the into the big time. It's very interesting that uh, Larry Parnes and Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, were both um, had sort of showbiz yearnings in their early in their early life. You know, to be an actor for I think for Epstein and you know and Larry Parnes uh, interested in the theatrical arts, but they couldn't make it, and somehow they used their energy or vision. To become, you know, managers or, you know, to me, they're almost like visionaries. They sort of like, they could look at something and, and, and market it and sell it. That's absolutely right. Uh, Larry and Brian and some of the others we talk about in the book mm-hmm. um, are looking at ways to get into show business. They, they're looking at show business as an obvious route out of where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's partly because many of these people that they're writing about in the book and certainly Larry and Brian are both Jewish. They both come from a very middle-class retail background where success has been instilled in them. And one route, in a very obvious route in Britain for Jewish people of a certain age was to get into show business. Show business in Britain was... Um, was dominated by by Jewish men. There were people like um, who later became Lord Delfont and the, the grades of people of like that who, who were Jewish background. Lots of our entertainers had a had a Jewish background. It was a really oh. obvious route that they could see. They saw other people doing it, so they could see a way of emulating them, if you like. Oh. Um, so, because of that very tight knit community that that was it the, the Jewish community in Britain at the time, they were looking at how other people within their community were becoming successful. And that was an obvious thing for them to get out of retail, to get out of selling women's clothing or, or furniture or whatever else it might be. Mm-hmm. Showbiz was the obvious thing. So, so Larry and Brian both had a go at acting. Brian especially went to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts here and mm-hmm. studied there for a while. Um, but they both realized fairly early on that, that that wasn't what was going to work for them. Mm-hmm. So through management, through managing, you know, young guys um, and young girls with Cilla Black and other people like that, eventually, mm-hmm. that was a very obvious way for them to to get into show business. So that was their their foot on the ladder, if you like. Yeah, it's also interesting that Epstein and, and uh, Pines almost sort of develop a family feeling or a family grouping with, the, with their artists. Um, you know, like how like Brian Epstein took care of the Beatles, but then he, you know, he took on Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer, and he added more people to his, you know, to his organization. But I got a funny feeling it was sort of like a um, uh, them against us type of situation. I mean, I mean the Jerry, the Larry Parnes uh, group of artists is so different from the Brian Epstein's group of artists. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are lots of reasons for that. I think Larry, for Larry, Larry was very money-focused, and Larry was modelling himself on uh, Colonel Tom Parker, who was kind of the only showbiz manager anybody had ever heard of. Uh-huh. Elvis's manager was the only person. But the big difference, of course, was Colonel Tom had Elvis, and that was it. Uh-huh. Uh, Larry, Larry wanted more than just one artist. He knew he had to diversify. He knew because of the way... Um, the British showbiz scene, the entertainment scene worked. You needed artists that could do more than just shake the hips and strum a guitar. They had to do other stuff. Mm-hmm. So he was constantly looking at ways to diversify and and to to turn each of his artists into kind of all round entertainers, if you like. So Larry Parnes, separate him from you know Brian Epstein's world. Larry Parnes found artists 
he would choose their songs pretty much, right? Or 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 would he rely on somebody else to do the, the music selection for these artists? Larry didn't know squat about songs. He just kind of, he, he would employ or would bring in other people to write songs. Um, Lionel Bart's an obvious example. Lionel Bart came in to, to write right. various songs. Um, that, but but uh, Larry was very soon in a position where he could employ or or could meet the best songwriters in the country to provide songs for his singers. Some of them were already writing their own songs. Tommy Steele was writing with Lionel Bart. Uh-huh. But Fu- Billy Fury wrote a few of his own songs, and all of the others, you know, Marty Wilde wrote his own some of his own material. Yeah. So they they were. Um, they were all trying, you know, various bits and bobs, and they were all they were all all of them writing something or another as well. But he had an inroad into the best songwriting, um, uh, so the best songwriters that were available at the time. Well, let's talk about Lionel Bart for uh, for for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's an interesting. I mean, he's an interesting figure himself. I mean, he's he's like a bridge between like old showbiz theater world which he you know which he totally belongs to but he also you know towards the rock world as well like he became friends with andrew Lowe goldham the manager of the rolling stones and you know he sort of dwell in in the in the sort of uh um, early or mid-60s rock and roll world as well um who is lionel bart lionel bart's a songwriter principally he Mm -hmm. started out um, he started working in in local theatre in London, but principally as a as a songwriter, musical arranger, not really as an actor, although he did act. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian, uh, Lionel wanted to write musicals, mm-hmm. so he started working for a company called Unity Theatre in the nineteen fifties in in London, which is a very kind of um, almost communist theatre uh, group, very very Ooh. very left wing, very political. Mm-hmm. Starts working with them, and then from there, kind of leaps out into major success with things like um, Oliver, which uh-huh. was a massive success on stage long before it became a film. Mm-hmm. Um, now, sadly, uh, he doesn't really uh, capitalize on that very well because the minute Lionel gets some money in his in his pocket, he goes and spends it like crazy, yeah. lives like a lord, um, yeah. does copious amounts of alcohol and drugs, and basically. Sp- just loses the plot. Um, Luke is invited over to Hollywood to make movies, screws that up completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, um, uh, he's, he just wants to party. He's, and he, one of the great things about Lionel is he throws a great party mm-hmm. and he, he meets a lot of people partying and, and makes some great connections, but he doesn't really take advantage of that. And, and kind of his career is, almost on the slide by the mid sixties and doesn't really pick up again. Right. And he also co-wrote uh, from Russia with love, the James Bond theme, correct? He did write the, the lyrics to that theme. Yes. With yes, um, right. was it John Barry, I, I guess. Barry, yeah. But he also wrote um, move it, which was a number one hit for Cliff Richard over here, which is a big, sorry, not move it. He wrote living doll, which was a number one hit for Cliff Richard over here. A big, big, big hit. Yeah. Um, so he was writing big hit pop songs for people as well as writing musicals. He's a fascinating figure. I, I don't know. I actually have two Lionel Bart albums in my collection. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm probably the only one in Los Angeles that have two Lionel Bart <laughs> albums in the 50s. He is a fascinating character, yeah. and, and he's he's very um, open about what he is and who he is. 
and says in a very early interview, I mean, early for this story, um, or early for kind of um, for using the kind of terminology that he used. He was he was coming out in a very early interviews and calling himself, you know, a, um, a, a homosexual communist in in, mm-hmm. in kind of times when you just couldn't say that in the press. He was um, Lionel wasn't really Lionel was outspoken. He wasn't really scared about who knew what anything about him. You know, we have to make a note here. If, you know, in in England during the sixties and before, of course, homosexuality was against the law. Correct. Homosexuality was against the law. We um, we changed the law to an extent. The homosexuality was partly decriminalized in 1967, mm-hmm. but even then, it was only legal for homosexual men over the age of 21, and then only for two men at a time and in private. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, you could be arrested just for walking down the street and you know having a limp wrist, literally. Right. You could be, you could end up in prison. You could end up being fined. It didn't happen very often, but you were fined. You were, you did end up in prison. People were constantly being arrested for cottaging, which is um, hanging around kind of public places looking to pick other guys up. So um, I think, I think uh, mostly, most of the cottaging went on in places like public convenience. I think in the states you call it, um, you call them tea rooms. If I remember my Armistead Mopin. Um, but it's, but it's that kind of thing. If you were, if you were hanging around and look, you know, looking like you were trying to pick somebody up, you were arrested, you were fined, you were possibly jailed. Um, and at one point in the 1950s, a thousand men a year were being jailed just for being homosexual. That's yeah. Right now, that's unbelievable, but I'm old enough, but I'm old enough to know, knew of that history. You know, I know it, it actually existed. Yeah. And it's yeah, horrifying. But that brings up the subject matter of David Jacobs. That's an, he's a really fascinating figure that comes throughout your book. Um, who is David Jacobs? Can you talk about him? David Jacobs is an incredibly interesting character, and very little is known about him or was known about him prior to this. Very little was written about him. Um, he was a showbiz lawyer who first came to prominence in this country, I guess, in the 1950s. We had a very famous case when Liberace sued the Daily Mail because, it, the sorry, the Daily Mirror, not the Daily mm-hmm. Mail. Liberace sued the Daily Mirror because he dared, dared to suggest that he might be homosexual. That's hard did, to believe. I mean. yeah. <laughs> it didn't use that word, but, but the, the language it used kind of left very little to the imagination. It was very obvious what they were suggesting. Mm-hmm. They called him, I think, I think the phrase was a mincing heap of mother love. <laughs> you know, um, very British. <laughs> yeah, they called him, you know, fruit flavored, neither he nor she, neuter, and all sorts. It was it was a pretty outrageous attack, mm-hmm. and and Liberace decided to sue, and took the Daily Mirror to court and won. You know, he won. He stood up in court and perjured himself by by saying. You know, I am not a homosexual. I am not a homosexualist is the word he used. Yes. I am not a homosexualist. But David Jacobs masterminded that case. And he very, very quickly became the go-to solicitor, lawyer in this country for the show, for showbiz. So we had people in like um, Roger Moore and his then wife using him. Diana Doris, who was a very famous actress over here at the time, yeah. using him. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Trevor Howard, who became internationally famous as an actor, mm-hmm. was was a client. Um, and then he met Larry, and he became business partners with Larry in in a aborted attempt to start a record label. But was Larry's go to legal expert, and so when Brian moved from Liverpool to London, Larry said, "You've got to use." David Jacobs, you have to go to David. He's your man. And and Brian and David became very, very close friends. And mm. David became the Beatles' go-to legal expert. And he sort of handled all the scandals at the time. Like when all, whenever a, a, a musician or rock artist get arrested for narcotics, he would be there to help them. Right. I mean, he's sort of the, the go to person. That's absolutely right. He was the one. He was the one to get anybody out of trouble or to try to get everybody out of trouble. Um, and usually he did. I mean, he was, if we go, go a little bit further into the story, he was, you know, he represented Donovan on drugs busts. He represented, uh, he was involved in the Rolling Stones case, but he wasn't, he wasn't their main representation, but he, he represented, you know, various members of the Beatles entourage. So, you know, girlfriends and wives and all that sort of thing. He was involved in pretty much every showbiz case in some way. Every big showbiz case that you know of in the 1960s um, or or late 50s, he's probably got a finger in it. And Jacobs is quite a, a flamboyant figure himself. I mean, he wore makeup. and I mean, did he wear like makeup during trial? And The story is that he wore makeup in court. I, I personally don't believe that. But uh-huh. he he definitely wore makeup he's um there are people who recollect you know going to parties with him and seeing him you know in so much makeup he looked like somebody out of the mikado uh-huh. um he certainly dyed his hair he certainly enhanced his looks i don't think he walked around in you know in, in court in full pancake but uh-huh. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he used you know he had a little bit of a touch up here and there if he had a you know he'd, he'd probably use a bit of concealer or something like that um he was quite flamboyant and he put people off you know he was he was a big guy he was six foot two or so and 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 very you know big powerful built um Mm. and if you imagine him going into court wearing even even a trace of makeup that's going to be quite off-putting to you know a very straight-laced british court he he was um Again, he was theatrical, I guess you'd call him. He was very theatrical. He liked theatrical people. He hung around with people like Judy Garland whenever she was in Britain. Mm-hmm. He was um he he liked that world and it was very much a part of it. And how did you discover because I never heard of David Jacobs? And I read a lot of books about the British, you know, culture at that time, but I never actually heard of him. At least I don't think I have. But how did you come upon David uh, David Jacobs in your in your research? Um that's a really good question. I mean, he's he's somebody who's been on the periphery of the Beatles. I knew about. I've always been a massive Beatles fan, uh-huh. so I knew that David Jacobs was involved in the um, in the scandal where you know where the Beatles were losing you know millions and millions of pounds of royalties. I knew he was involved in that in some way. Mm-hmm. It was only really when I was looking into Larry's life when I when I first came across reference to he and Larry being involved in a business deal that I started to realize there were further connections. And so like anything, um, a lot of these, a lot of this, this book and, and the kind of books that I write, a lot of that's just research. A lot of it is sitting down and going over 
copious old, you know, issues of old newspapers, going through old books, going, you know, going through every archive you can find. You just, you, you follow a trail, you start to build up little, you, you see little points where these people crop up mm-hmm. and, and you follow them through. And then when you're talking to people, when you're interviewing people, like I did for, for the book, musicians that mm-hmm. I interviewed, you'll mention the name of the guy. Oh yes, I remember him. He was, he was so-and-so. He was doing this, he was doing that. And, and you build up from these scant little stories. You suddenly start to create a much fuller picture. It's like having um, a few pieces of jigsaw without the box, you know, right. and, and you start to kind of, you suddenly can work out, oh, that piece clearly goes with that. And that goes with that. And, and you, and you slowly, slowly build the story up. One of my heroes Somebody I almost worship, but he's kind of an evil figure of sorts, is Joe Meek. Sure. I love Joe Meek. <laughs> Me too. I have a quite a, a large Joe Meek collection here of, of, uh, of recordings. And um, can, uh, I, I could tell you about Joe Meek, but can you tell us your version of Joe Meek? What, who is Joe Meek? Well, Joe's another character that's always fascinated me. Uh, and that's partly because he comes from um, very near the town where I was born. And he worked in the town where I was born for a while. Uh, so he was born in uh, in, in the Forest of Dean in Newant. But he, he worked for a long time in Gloucester, which is where I, I was born. Not that our paths ever crossed at that time. He was um, just a few years before I, I happened on the scene. Mm-hmm. But Joe was a fascinating character. He was... Um, incredible producer he he was he was responsible for things like uh, the tornadoes telstar which you know instrumental hit which everybody knows um he was incredibly driven and incredibly um uh, fascinated by strange sounds and odd effects and other things that he could do and he kind of helped to create not only independent production in this country but uh, the actual independent record companies uh independent record industry in this country right. in this country but joe was as as you know yourself joe was um a very tortured soul he had oh. mental health issues yes. which sadly were undiagnosed at the time um yeah. and so he tended to self-medicate by taking a lot of drugs that he shouldn't have taken yes joe was like the other character main characters of the book was also homosexual and and we touched upon people getting arrested earlier in this conversation and Joe was arrested in mm. 1963, kind of at the height of his fame. He was arrested for importuning for cottaging for hanging around toilets, trying to pick guys up. Yes. Not very far from where he lived. Um, and that kind of sent him on a downward spiral. I have a fantasy, which I think is true that he met Joe Orton in the toilets. <laughs> It's. It wouldn't be impossible. Exactly. <laughs> I, actually, I actually went to Orton's, you know, apartment or his flat, and I walked yeah. to Joe, Joe's studio. <laughs> I figured, you know, it's possible. It's very possible that they, they connected. They were both very fond of that kind of um, experience, so mm-hmm. it wouldn't be impossible. Yes, that's my fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, so Jeremy was, was hugely like paranoid. He was, you know, he was gay. Um, his situation was always seems to be in sort of a dangerous situation, mostly for his mental state. Um, was he actually in danger physically from like gangsters or, or anybody of that sort? Or was it this totally self-imagined or this? No, there are stories that the Cray twins were trying to muscle in on his business, um, that they wanted to take over the management of the tornadoes. I think it was the tornadoes. I remember correctly, if uh-huh. I remember correctly, 
Um, so yes, I mean, I mean, Joe was Joe was always dicing with danger. Apart from the drugs, apart from you know being gay at a time when you couldn't be gay, mm-hmm. he was um, he was also a member of a of a, of a couple of um, members only clubs where where dodgy people would tend to hang around. So mm-hmm. and um, Joe was always looking for ways to make money. So he wasn't averse to kind of getting involved with some dodgy people occasionally. And also, he was a fa- he was fascinated with the spiritual world, the afterlife. He was obsessed with with the idea of of ghosts and the afterlife, and he was convinced that Buddy Holly spoke to him after he died. And a lot of his songs were a lot of his songs are basic ripoffs of, of Buddy Holly songs. But right. he, you know, he was channeling Buddy or whatever. He, there's a very famous story that he would take uh, a you know portable reel to reel tape recorder into a graveyard and was recording the voices of cats, convinced yep. that people were speaking to him from beyond the grave. Um, Joe was a bit messed up, sadly, and 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 I do think it's sad because if yeah. he had got the right help, if he had been on the right medication, he may not have ended his life and the life of his landlady in such a horrific way. Yeah. Um, I don't know if your listeners will know the story, but in 1967, Joe shot his landlady with a shotgun and then turned the gun on himself and shot himself, killing yeah. them both. Yeah. Um, which is horrible, absolutely horrible way for both of them to go. And, and you yeah. know, in, in Violet Shenton's case, completely, you know, uncalled for. That's very weird because when I went to his, you know, I didn't go inside his studio. I was, I was just outside, you know, the building, the entrance. Yeah. And he has like a little the glue, what do you call the uh, blue? The blue plaque. Blue plaque, which I think yeah. he deserves. I mean, a blue plaque, definitely. But it's oddly enough, they didn't mention him being murdered. <laughs> he quit this guy. Or even, or even worse, they didn't mention that he murdered someone. No, it doesn't mention that. It doesn't mention that he was gay. <laughs> but you can only fit so much stuff onto one of those things. I think they should, I think they should just put a long block. <laughs> I think they should give because, I mean, this horrendous crime took place there. I mean, it's, hard, I mean, it's weird to distance oneself from when something horrific happened there. And, and, um, I don't know, it just, I, I thought it slightly offensive. I mean, I thought they should at least mention that he did sh- kill his landlady. I think I'm right in saying, I could be wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that the plaque there was funded by the by the Joe Meek Appreciation Society. So I can't imagine it would pay them to make too much of the of the horror of, of the murder of Violet Shenton. Appreciation, that's that's a key word here, the appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> Strong fan base. But, um, do, do you know anything about the Polari language? Uh, a little, yes. There was... Um... It was a slang that was used from the 30s or maybe even earlier than that onwards, um, mostly within the gay community, um, and I think has a has a basis in in kind of the the, the Roman gypsy languages. Right. But it's um it's it's slang that was popularized in Britain in the 1950s and well 1960s, mm-hmm. weirdly through a very straight but incredibly funny. Uh, radio show, um, a radio comedy we had over here called uh, Around the Horn, mm-hmm. um, which co-starred two gay actors playing the role of two gay actors on the show. Um, oh. And they would use Polari quite often in this. You know, there are, I mean, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of an example, but there, there's odd words like um, lallies for legs and, and, um, 
Omi Poloni is, uh, I think, is a good-looking man and and stuff like this. It's very interesting. You know, I I don't have this record. I mean, can't find it. But um, Joe Meek recorded uh, the Tornados and a, a song called uh, the I think the last single is called "Is That a Ship I Hear." That's right. And the B side is a song, which is mostly instrumental, called "Do You Come Here Often." That's right. It is. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> well. Um, the the tornadoes had gone through several different um iterations at this point and they really were on their last legs all the people that had played on on telstar and, and the, the early hits had gone and it's basically a completely different it's a completely different group but just using that name because it's a marketable name joe recorded is that a ship i is that a ship i hear and do you come here often principally because at the time joe was going out with a dj from radio luxembourg and he thought the idea of um, is that a ship I hear or whatever it's called would get airplay because you know of the pirate ships of Luxembourg being, uh, right, being, right, right. being based on a pirate ship. Uh-huh. But the flip side, do you come here often? Is as you say, it's mostly instrumental, written co-written by the members of the of the Tornadoes, as were and Joe. And in the middle, there's this short spoken passage, which some of it is in Polari. Yes, and it's it's all about two guys standing at a bar the guys that recorded it didn't know it was supposed to be a gay bar and they swear and that's even now it's not a gay story but right. it very clearly is because of the language they're using yeah so joe, joe i presume joe meek wrote the words <laughs> joe meek would have had to have written the words because there's no other way no way those other guys would have known that story and it's very much about two guys two very bitchy queens yeah. you know tearing tearing lumps out of each other and then offering to go off um trolling down the dilly or looking for sex in Pic- in the piccadilly area later so and like in 1960 whatever that year was was released 66 i presume or yeah um was gay culture or accepted in a showbiz sense not in a personal sense but in 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 a sense that like you see like like see like kenneth williams who i know of he's not famous yeah. in america at all but i mean i do do most of the audience think oh that is a homosexual character or that's a gay character i mean do they what's the the duality here sure um i think the issue is that camp humor had been part of kind of british culture for such a long time with you know with drag artists and things like that being kind of stars on saturday night television people didn't talk about homosexuality people didn't talk about lgbtq people at all so if you were camp you weren't necessarily thought of as being homosexual as being gay you were just assumed to be theatrical (laughs) (laughs) and that was the kind of language that was used so kenneth williams as you mentioned and i mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. kenneth williams never came out in his lifetime he was he was always closeted he never once admitted to being homosexual in public um so at the time you couldn't you couldn't come out publicly in showbiz it was understood that you could get away with um being gay being homosexual as long as you didn't shout about it so people conducted fairly fairly open gay lives mm-hmm. but only within the context of um their friends in showbiz understanding about it and knowing about it but it was never discussed so so when, when joe produced the you know and wrote Kobo, do you come here often is it i mean what is that what is that geared for is it was that song geared for 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 gay listeners or 
was it just a camp thing? I mean, what was the purpose of him putting that song together? It's, I mean, it's only on a B side of a single that wasn't, was never going to be a hit. It was never going to sell massive copies. He's, he's primarily doing that for fun. He's primarily doing that because it's a very funny little story, but he's, you know, he's gearing this towards friends of his. As I said, the A side was basically written to because he was going out with somebody who was a DJ on a pirate station. So mm-hmm. they, he was hoping the A side would get play. He was hoping people would laugh at the B side. He was probably hoping that because of the the fascination with Polari being used in Round the Horn, some people might find it funny and get the joke. But it, right. he never in a million years thought that this record was going to be a hit. I see. Okay. There's there's actually quite a lot of Joe Meek's music that hasn't been released. Isn't that correct? Is anybody going through that? There's a huge amount. Um, mm-hmm. It's famously known as the uh, the tea chest tapes. Right. And when when he died, um, he left boxes and boxes and boxes full of old tapes with all sorts of stuff on people, you know, early David Bowie sessions and, and things like this, Tom Jones mm-hmm. sessions, um, all sorts of, all sorts of very early recordings. And Mark Boland, I think there's probably some Mark Boland sessions in there. So he certainly hung around um, Joe Mick's studio for about six months. Um, this stuff is only recently, I believe, been handed over to Cherry Red Records over here, who are now in the process of going through it all and hopefully releasing it finally. Oh, great. Yeah, that's amazing. That's an amazing find or amazing thing to have. I heard about these, this, this, this tea, you know, Kate, um, uh, what do they call it again? Tea chest? Tea chest. The tea chest. Forever. So it's, it's finally coming to realization. It's actual fact. And it's, you know, it'll eventually be released. And I guess they have to document um, what's on there as well. And they'll have to go through and see, you know, who owns what copyrights, what they can and can't use. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if, if there are unreleased Bowie tracks in there, you know, the Bowie estate's going to put the, the claim in there first. Right. Tricky. I think it's really interesting that, you know, when you look at this group of men, they were so instrumental in pushing forward the the genre of rock and roll. I mean, for example, Brian Epstein um, you know, he created the Beatle haircut and the Beatle suits. He really changed them from being sort of that 50s rocker style. And, um, you know, they really put their stamp on rock and roll. They absolutely did. I mean, the thing to remember about the people we're talk- I'm talking about in this book is they weren't flag wavers for the LGBTQ um, community. They really weren't. But they were trendsetters. They were part of this change in attitude and opinion towards the LGBTQ community that was happening at that time. It's all wrapped up with um, with the kind of sexual freedom, with with emancipation for, I mean, with, with women's liberation, with the civil rights movement. All these things happening at the same time. All these things are, you know, helping to to change people's attitudes, not only towards sex and sexuality, but towards everything, towards the music we listen to, the films we watch, the books we read, the plays we watch, absolutely everything. They're an incredibly important part of our history. And they really, these lives really deserve to be to be written about and to be celebrated because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, if I had my own record store, I don't, but I did. I think I would put a section of like this manager's records, like Larry Parn's section, I would put a... Joe Meek, of course. Brian Epstein will get his own section. I don't think the Beatles will, but it'll just be a Brian Epstein section. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the way I would run a record store. (laughs) And maybe I will call it, if it was your permission, the Velvet Mafia. 
You can call it whatever you like. I don't mind. (laughs) (laughs) But um, another interesting character is Robert Stigwood. Yeah. And he has a long, twisted, sort of perverse history. Um, Can you talk about him a little bit? Yeah, happily. I mean, Stigma's career is fascinating mm-hmm. because if you look at it, if you look at his, his his entire career, there are three or four different periods where he's doing really, really well. He's incredibly successful. But every time that happens, somebody else is in charge of the purse strings. Mm. He is, he's, he's clearly brilliant at what he does, but he's absolutely useless when it comes to looking after money. He's right. a drinker. He's an inveterate gambler. He cannot look after money. So we need somebody else there to, to, you know, to sign the checks, to balance the books. Mm-hmm. And every time that happens, he does incredibly well. Um, Stigwood comes over to Britain uh, in the 1950s from Australia with very little money in his pocket, starts off selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And within a couple of years is, is running a theater. And then shortly after that, running his own record company, he's, you know, he's like the other characters in the book, incredibly driven by the need to be successful, by the desire to, to not just be this gay man that's come from Australia. He wants to be famous and he wants to be successful. He wants to be rich, and he's really driven. But he had a really up and down career. I mean, throughout his professional life. Yeah, because I mean, kind of like um, like Larry and and Lionel, they they make some major mistakes when mm-hmm. it, when they uh, <laughs> when they let their passions rule their head, if you like, um, without <laughs> you know without being base. Um, Mm-hmm. They were very much led at, at times by by their desire to be carnal, mm-hmm. uh, and and Robert Stigwood would sign some just hopeless acts just because he fancied them. Right. Um, in the same way that that Larry did that once or twice, you know, and and failed dismally when that happened. Um, and Lionel was, you know, Lionel was trying to <laughs> Lionel was trying to shaft Bobby Shafto, if you don't mind, <laughs> um, because you know. And, and and it was never going to happen. It was, it was just completely the wrong thing to do. But but they were very. Um, that's why I think Stigwood needed somebody else around to to manage him, if you like, and to manage the purse strings. Because if you let Robert go on his own, he just he wouldn't have a clue who was signing. And it's kind of amazing because he you know he became a successful movie producer. You know, Saturday Night, the Saturday Night Fever, uh, the Bee Gees, of course. Actually, I think that's really interesting. That's a really interesting part of the story is the fact that although Stigwood starts out, he starts out in management. He starts out in theatre management and, and starts out in looking after actors. And he, he gets into music accidentally through managing actors. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think if you look at Stigwood's career and if you look at uh, Larry Pards' career, they were really more interested in theatre than they were in, in in rock and roll singers, and that's really where they wanted to go. And and Stigwood makes makes it huge in theatre in Britain in the at the end of the sixties, early nineteen seventies, and that what's that's what leads him into film. Mm-hmm. Larry would kind of give up on on music management and artist management and move into theatre, and then was incredibly successful again. I think if Brian Epstein had lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the Beatles no longer needed him, he was very clearly already moving into theatre. He he'd just taken on the lease of the Savile, and that was starting to do very very well. He mm-hmm. would have gone down that route as well. And I see a career for Brian 
post the Beatles in in theatre or in film. Absolutely, I think I think they were all on a very similar path. Do you think Epstein, if he lived, uh, would have separated from the Beatles world? Do you think there would be a time when he would not be a manager of the Beatles or have any professional relationship with them? Um, yes, it would have happened at some point because the Beatles were never going to last forever. Right. Um, I, I think I think the Beatles had you know, had that finite period where that where they existed for, and and thank goodness for that. I, right. I, I, I they're the love of my life, but I wouldn't have I wouldn't have wanted them to exist into you know it's nineteen seventy seven. They'd just been making horrible music together. It wouldn't have worked, and right. they'd have killed their their um their legend would be over. You know. Yeah. Um, but Brian, one of the fascinating things about the Beatles and Brian is they were fiercely loyal to each other. Absolutely mm-hmm. fiercely loyal. And when Brian was kind of losing the plot in 66, 67, and really wanted to get out of what he was doing and go and do something else, the Beatles, when they got wind of this and got the idea that Robert Stig would maybe possibly take over their business, absolutely refused point blank to work for anybody else. And mm-hmm. told Stigwood and Brian that if, if, anybody apart from brian tried to manage them they would just record god save the queen for every record until they were released from their contract <laughs> you know there was there was no way they would work for anybody else uh-huh. but i don't know how much longer they would have existed had brian not died i don't think they would have existed for much more than you know than abbey road and let it be anyway to be honest what is the relationship between like brian epstein and the individual beatles i mean there's been you know rumors and uh, about him and john lennon because um, they they took a vacation together to Spain, I guess. But um, do you feel that their relationship was very romantic or meaningful to to, to each other? Well, um, John and Brian had a dalliance in Spain, in Barcelona. Yes, it was a one-off. Um, Brian and John absolutely adored each other, but both were mercurial people. Both were at times heavily medicated and both could be absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, John could certainly be absolutely horrible towards Brian when, when, the, when the mood took him and it witheringly bad. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier on. They were still fiercely loyal to each other. And even though, you know, people will now say, Oh, John Lennon was horrible to Brian. John called Brian all sorts of things. You could do that within that group because yeah. you were one of those five people, you know? Yeah, yeah, What yeah. you couldn't do from outside of that group was attack. Um, there's a story I've, I've mentioned in the book yes. about Harry Nielsen visiting George Harrison when he's in um, Los Angeles, in uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, in uh, 1967. Mm-hmm. The Beatles are currently getting Apple together. Brian is still around at this point. He hasn't um, he hasn't died at this point. Mm-hmm. They're currently trying to get Apple together, and George wants Harry Nielsen to join this new company they're forming. Mm-hmm. Nielsen turns around to George and says, I don't want to be managed by a fag. Mm-hmm. And George threw him out of the house. Mm-hmm. You know, they were fiercely loyal towards right. each other. They they had issues. Every relationship has issues, right. you know. The Beatles and Brian were a marriage, and you tell me of a marriage that doesn't have problems. Mine certainly, you know, I have I have issues with my marriage. Of course, I do. You know, we all do. That's a natural natural situation. There are yeah. going to be times when you hate each other, um, but they loved each other deeply, and and they were they were absolutely tied to each other. And and I don't think even if Brian hadn't have died when he died i don't think the beatles had much further to go but he would have stayed with them for as long as they were around yeah wow amazing what an interesting uh, 
combo, Brian and, and, and the Beatles. Well, I love all the stories in the book of missed opportunities. I mean, when you think about all the people that turned down the Beatles and David Bowie, it's kind of, uh, you wonder like, oh, they must be kicking themselves afterwards, you know? And, and you mentioned the one story about, I think Larry Parnes writing an article saying, well, the, the Beatles didn't really have that much success in America, did they? There's a little bit of that competitive, you know. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. There was, um, even though all of these people, you know, Brian and Larry and 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 Lionel and, and Robert Stigwood and all the others, even though they all worked together and they all knew each other and they socialized together and they did form this support network of sorts, a very loose conglomeration, if you like, mm-hmm. um, they were still fiercely competitive and everybody wanted to have the big hit, wanted the next hit. But also they kind of managed that. You know, um, Brian and and Andrew Luke Older would meet together and work out when the Beatles the Beatles and the Stones were gonna release records so they didn't compete with each other too much. Mm-hmm. You know. There was they they were fiercely competitive, but they also knew that there was only a finite amount of money in teenagers' pockets and you mm-hmm. can't constantly milk it. At one point in nineteen sixty four many of these people came together and tried to form um, a a thing called the British uh, Impresarios Guild, which would kind of um, give each of them the opportunity to work out how the tour should happen, when the tour should happen, who should release records, how and when, because they knew they couldn't milk this rock and roll cash cow dry forever. They had to work together to work out how to apportion up the amount of money that British teenagers could spend. So they're very aware of the market or, and sort of the, the pros and cons of the realistic economic aspect of, of, the, of their time. Oh, hugely. Yeah, yeah. These, these were very, very intelligent people. I, I might have been a bit disparaging about Robert Stigwood earlier about his mismanagement of money, but it doesn't get away from the fact that he was a fiercely intelligent, very, very savvy guy who knew what, what sold. They knew what they were doing. They really did have the finger on the pulse. And the fact that he, that Robert Stig would um, end up with Cream. <laughs> Cream. Yeah, and, and, and the Bee Gees, who, you know, he stole from under Brad Epstein's nose. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah you make the point um, in the book that prior to all of these men, the head of EMI was previously the run, he ran a flour mill or something. Like, these were the <laughs> right. who really sort of started to understand this youth market. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, uh, Joseph Lockwood was a, was a yeah a flower miller that by trade. That's what he did. He was he was brought into EMI to to stop them, you know, to turn them around because they were making massive losses because they didn't understand the market. They didn't know what was going on. They were still they had their head up their backsides, absolutely mm-hmm. convinced mm-hmm. that. All the British public wanted were were classical records by by worthy you know noted noted names in the classical music field. They were ignoring pop and rock and novelty and children's and all this other stuff where they could have been making an absolute mint. And and Lockwood helped turn the business around. And it's interesting too that I mean the UK you didn't have any pop rock radio stations, um, any legitimate ones. They were all these pirate radio stations. Yeah, nothing before 1967. We had um, what we now would call Radio 2, which was our kind of um, easy listening station, which had two or three so- um, stations, uh, sorry, two or three shows that would play the occasional pop record. But it really didn't exist. And before um, Radio Luxembourg came on the air and started broadcasting into British homes, playing nonstop pop music, it just didn't happen. And it took the BBC until 1967 to launch their own pop station. 
It's it's mm. when you think about it, it's, that's just ludicrous. You know, it is. yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's interesting all of the obstacles that they had to deal with. You know, it's just you know their lifestyle was illegal. Um, many of them were Jewish, which had its own set of prejudices. Mm. Um, and then you know they have they they have no radio, no legitimate radio to market their songs. I mean, it's kind of incredible the obstacles that they overcame. Well, that's kind of when you when anything's new, that's what happens, isn't it? I mean, rock and roll and pop music were very, very new. And and what they had to face was this intransigent industry that thought they knew better. You know, they couldn't, you know, when punk, when punk rock came along in the 1970s in, in here in Britain, I know American punk is a very different kind of story, but mm-hmm. when punk happened over here, nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody understood it. Nobody knew how to market it. So they didn't. And so, you know, the the kids and people like Malcolm McLaren and those other people had to find a way to market it, had to find a way in to to, to make inroads into the industry. And that's exactly what was happening here. The the general consensus was that kids didn't buy records. Mm -hmm. And how ludicrous is that? Right. Do you think of Malcolm McLaren as being sort of uh, the son of Larry Parnes more than, say, a relative of, of Brian Epstein? (laughs) <laughs> oh i've never thought about it. i think i think malcolm mclaren's probably much more robert stigwood than anybody else stigwood, okay. <laughs> that's a standard i want stigwood. yeah <laughs> how how important were the cray twins to the whole pop music uh gay management culture well, they were just they were part of London's culture at the time. They weren't really involved in in the music industry in any way. Although, as I said, there were kind of rumours that they wanted to get involved in pop management as a way to legitimise their business. Uh-huh. Um, but they they weren't really involved. They because they ran protection rackets. They were involved in the kind of local club scene and the coffee bar scene and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't really involved in in the music scene. They knew people. They were around on the scene. Um, they were um, they were gamblers. So they were you know Brian was a gambler. Um, um, Stigma was a gambler. So they were bumping into each other in in you know gambling dens and places like that. Mm-hmm. And and. When that whole swinging London thing p- kicks off, they're being photographed along, you know, in by David Bailey, who's also photographing the Beatles and is also photographing the Stones and, and so on and so on. So they're they're part of this. <sighs> I hate this word, but they're part of the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. They're part of what's going on at the time, um, and and they're although they're not tightly wired to the music scene they're kind of you know they've got again they've got fingers in pies they're a lurking menace is it possible for for like brian Epstein to avoid the world of the craze or vice versa i mean were they were they ever i mean i know they gambled and there's a good chance that they were you know epstein was in there in one of their nightclubs and stuff like that but just that fact that that um ronnie cray was either gay or bisexual, but the fact that you know it's just such a you know London is such a small cultural world, really. When you get you know when you get to it, and you know I I, I have to, I just always got the impression that the craze were such a uh, huge presence in that world, and I wondered like if if people like Joe Meek or Robert Stigwood actually feared the craze. Um, I think by the time the craze came became involved with Joe Meek, Joe wouldn't have given a toss about who was shouting at him he was just so far gone it wouldn't have mattered anyway mm-hmm. um brian brian and and robert stigwood would have run into them occasionally when they were out gambling and stuff like that or, or going out in, into the pubs and clubs because they were part of that scene 
Um, there were stories that you know the the, the craze were trying to get involved with the Beatles and all sorts of things, but it, it doesn't really it doesn't really seem to amount to anything. Um, the closest Brian and and the others would have come was was through the craze association with uh, with David Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Because Jacobs was the you know the lawyer, the solicitor. They they were kind of in and out of his life in some way or another for for a long time. And and right at the end of Jacobs' life, there were stories that the craze wanted to bring him in to represent them. Mm. So um, so that's about the, the as close as they would have got. They would have been through association. You know, or th- but um, certainly they were going out and partying and and you know someone would you know the, the room would go quiet because ronnie or reggie would walk in right. but don't don't put too much emphasis on the craze and what they were because they were just you know there were a couple of gangland thugs you know in in a city of you know seven eight million people at that time Adele, you know i really want to do that <laughs> <laughs> tosh is a bit obsessed with the craze <laughs> I think Britain's been obsessed with the craze for 60 years and there's no real reason to be, you know. So David Jacobs ended his life, correct? It was a suicide? It appears to be a suicide, yeah. He appears to have hung himself. It's sad. It seems like quite a few of these men had tragic endings, you know, Brian Epstein and Joe Meek and Kit Lampert. They all had... They died relatively young and possible suicides. It it is sad. It's very very sad. But you're also you're dealing at a time. You're going back to a time when we really didn't understand uh, mental health issues. We didn't deal with it very well. People didn't talk about mental health. People didn't see their doctors. Mm-hmm. They tended to self medicate and throw down gobfuls of pills. And certainly in Brian's case and in Joe's case and in David Jacobs' case, they were prodigious pill takers. They were throwing down so many drugs. They probably didn't know what they were doing from one day to the next sometimes. Mm. Um, it's it's hugely sad because it's very clear that, that Brian and Joe and David Jacobs at the end of his life were suffering with mental health issues. And if they had had help, if there was somebody they could talk to about it, if there was right. a un- better understanding of what was going on, maybe those three guys would have been around for another 20, 30, 40 years. Right. Who knows? You know, one of my favorite songwriters from that period of time is Alan Blakely and Ken yeah. Howard. Um, yeah. Because I love the Honeycombs, which is a Joe Meek produced band. Yeah, um, almost an obsession, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the, I mean, I love the music they wrote for the Honeycombs. I wrote. I love the music they wrote for Dave D and Mick Tish. Yep. I forgot their name. <laughs> Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Tish, and uh, Peter Frampton's uh, first band that heard. Um, the music is quite different from each band. I mean, it's not the same. You know, the Honeycombs music is different from. Uh, from the herd and, and so forth. Um, how do they fit in into that culture? This is only as songwriters, or did they have any like um, um, what were their ties to to the, sort of the managers of that time, if any? Well, they started out as songwriters, but they very quickly became involved in management because they had no choice. When uh, they took the, I think they were called the Sheratons at that time to Joe Meek before they became known as the Honeycombs. Um, they didn't have a manager. And so they kind of became their manager by default. And the same thing kind of happened with, with Dave D, Dozy B, King, Mick and Titch. They became management by default. Um, Ken and Alan really wanted to be songwriters or, or, you know, music. They wanted to write musicals. Mm-hmm. They didn't really see this. They always thought management was a bit of a bore, uh-huh. but they 
couldn't help but be involved in that world. So they were, they were um, again, a, a kind of integral part of what was going on at that time. But they kind of come along in, what is, when's have I the right? Um, 64. So 64 right. kind of onwards. And mm-hmm. then and then move into the seventies and become part of what was going on then much more. Right. Is there? Do you have a favorite artist of that period? Like like, do you have a favorite Larry Parnes artist that you actually listen to? Oh, um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I I, I love Joe Meek stuff, and there's so many strange records that Joe right. Meek released. I absolutely adore Larry. Um, I I kind of like the records that Vince Eager was making because I think they were they were different and kind of raw and cheering it and. And if he'd have had better songwriters and better performers, he uh-huh. could, uh, sorry, better songwriters and better producers, he could have gone, uh, he could have had quite an interesting career. And sadly he didn't, or hasn't had yet. He's still around. Uh-huh. Um, Billy Fury made some great and very interesting records. I mean, covering David Bowie in 1967 is a bit weird, you know, right. um, his version of city boy blues. Great. Um, there's all, there are there are so many there are so many Tosh I I I, I, c- I couldn't name one there are loads yeah I'm actually I, I'm actually very fond of Billy Fury's uh, records I really like his recordings he's got a great voice Billy he's got a really great voice yeah he's pretty remarkable um, this book is like a bible to me Daryl <laughs> <laughs> Daryl you have no idea when uh, Tosh first discovered this book was about to come out he had made a post on Facebook and I was just like. You know, Tosh, this is a book you probably should have written. <laughs> I can't. He's, written, he, he's like, yeah, you beat him to it. <laughs> oh, that's but, fantastic. Uh, he's with this stuff. <laughs> I, I do ever think about you know you 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 mentioned people like Kit Lambert and yeah. um, uh, and and Simon Napier Bell who are equally fascinating. I mean, but but do not really, they're, they're they're sort of part of the story or part of the narrative. Um, do you ever think about maybe going on to the seventies and writing about the same subject matter, or is it, or the sixties? Sort of, that's it for you. For for um, well, well, you may just have to wait and see what comes out next year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very exciting! We'll I have, to have you back. <laughs> I think I think this period, this nineteen fifty six through sixty nine period, mm-hmm. is it's fascinating. Not just because. It's, you know, it's the birth of rock and roll and the, and the birth of what we call pop music in this country. But it's also coincidentally exactly the same lifespan of the Beatles. Yeah. So and I've always been obsessed with the Beatles. So it just works really well there. I think it works really well as a separate and a separate era on its own. I, I do have a book coming out next year, which looks at um, the 70s onwards in not not quite in the same way. But but some of the names drift in and out of it. Yeah. Mm. I, I need to read your David Bowie Made Me Gay book. You do. It's a very good book. Yeah, it's such a great title. It's so provocative. I love it. And I know David Bowie is one of David Bowie's favorite records. Is is by the artist uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. It is indeed. See, there's a connection here. And there is a connection here. Uh, my first professional book, if you like, my first two were um, were self-produced or self-published, was um, the first ever biography of Florence Foster Jenkins, yes. Yeah, she's fascinating. She absolutely is. Uh, I, I adore Florence. She's my spirit animal. Um, <laughs> she, she really is. She's, she's um, a fascinating, fascinating character. And, and I love, I adore her. And I adore her life. And I adore everything about her. She was so much more nuanced than, than you know, the story we get from the film. The film's great, mm-hmm. but, the but there's film. so much more to her life. Yeah, she's an amazing, yeah, amazing figure. Anyway, Kim, do you have anything to add? 
this is such an essential book. I think anybody interested in the pop music world or the gay culture world of that era, it's, it's a must read for sure. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much. It's really, really kind of you both to say thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I mean, uh, anybody who writes, the only thing they can hope for is that somebody picks it up and enjoys reading it. And, you know, I'm, 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 I'm honored and touched. Read other books on the subject matter. There's not that many, maybe just two or three, but your book is definitely the best. Um, because you've defined not only these personalities, but also the culture around these personalities and the business. And, you know, you get the whole picture of really London, 1950s, 1960s in a very, very uh, profound and I think a very thorough manner. So you did an incredible job of like journalism. Well, thank you. Thank you. And the book has got a great energy too. It's, it swings, you know, it sort of fits in with the era. Yes. <laughs> That's you really know, it's good. I mean, fun read. <laughs> it could have been a lot longer, but I think if it had been a lot longer, it would have been, it would have been a lot more boring. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to know when to edit. You, you know, you need, you need to know when to edit and you also need to know that, you have an editor to rely on to to sort it out for you and, and to to tighten it up and make it much more readable. I'm, I'm waiting for your 800 page biography on, on Larry Parnes. <laughs> <laughs> day by day life, Larry Parnes. <laughs> anyway, the book is "The Velvet Mafia: The Gay Men Who Ran the Swinging Sixties by our guest and author Daryl W. Bullock. Thank you so much, Daryl. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you both for having me on. Oh, it was a pleasure. And Kimmy, what's, what's, our next, what's, our, what's our next adventure? So our next adventure, we're going to be reading a 33 and a third book. And this is from the Japan series, which is uh, new for us. I don't think we've read anything from their international series before. And it's on Shonen Knife's Happy Hour um, by Brooke McCorkle Okazaki. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, so that should be fun. That'll be uh, completely new for both of us. Yes, we're going from London 50s, 60s to Tokyo or yes. Osaka. Yes. We, we travel. Things up. We definitely <laughs> like to keep people on the edge. Uh, anyway, everybody can uh, follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for all of our latest news. And we have playlists for every episode on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can find links to everything on our website at bookmusic.com. B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K dot com. So thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>